Welcome to EI Dialogues, a podcast series brought to you by Educational Initiatives, an organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders to delve deeper into the most urgent and important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is hosted by Pranav Kothari. In this episode, we have with us Vishal Taldreja. He's the co-founder of Dream a Dream, an organization that empowers young people from vulnerable backgrounds to overcome adversity and flourish in a fast-changing world using a creative life skills approach. That life skills helps these children growing up in adversity to catch up to their developmental milestones. So if you put a kid who's now had developmental delays, even into the best school, they will not learn unless you address the gaps. Right? So numeracy and literacy for me actually comes above the core foundation of life skills and social emotional learning. Uh, and then the life skills also help you build resilience and adaptability to respond to a fast-changing world, to an uncertain, complex future. So that's really for me at the core of what is the benefit of life skills and social emotional learning. India presently has the highest number of young people in the world, yielding the country a rich demographic dividend, more specifically 600 million people under the age of 25 years. However, varied factors like globalization, a changing economic landscape, socio-cultural shifts, paucity of infrastructure in education, along with adverse factors, including poverty and malnutrition amongst others, has led to an environment of uncertainty and stress for many youth. How can we unlock the potential for such a huge population? Vishal demystifies for us the meaning of the terms like social and emotional learning, life skills and 21st century skills, and why they are more relevant today than ever. Vishal further shares his thoughts on scaling and why moments of stillness and deep work are important for an organization. On to Pranav now. Thank you so much for coming, Vishal. I look forward to our conversation. It's a pleasure, Pranav. Thank you. Thank you. Vishal, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Dream a Dream? Dream a Dream uh, is a 20-year-old organization. Our focus is working with uh, young people uh, who are growing up in adversities, growing up in uh, vulnerable backgrounds, and helping them overcome adversity and to thrive and flourish in the 21st century using a creative life skills approach. Uh, we work directly with young people in Bangalore uh, through programs that we've designed and deliver ourselves. Uh, we work on training teachers on how teachers can bring more empathy and creativity in classroom environments. And now we are also working with governments on how governments can systemically transform education and bring in more life skills approaches in education systems. Michelle, life skills, 21st century skills, social-emotional learning, are all of these different or same? We hear, you know, the distinctions between them. What are the differences? Uh, so interestingly, we don't consider them different. Uh, we use them interchangeably. Uh, my take on it is that social-emotional learning comes from a very Western construct. Uh, we prefer using life skills in the Indian construct, in the Indian context, 
because life skills is also easy to understand when we are talk when you're working with target groups when you're working with teachers educators or young people also it's easily translatable in many indian languages whereas social emotional learning is more difficult to translate and understand um, uh, 21st century skills is more i would think uh, fat right now uh, because uh, it it sounds cool no because we are in 2019 exactly <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but life skills, if you take, were relevant in the 16th century or relevant today. Uh, so we use it interchangeably. We don't believe uh, they're different things. Uh, uh, and I think it's important to always keep context in mind when you're using a certain terminology uh, because language matters. So these life skills, uh, I mean, are these things that uh, people have to do to earn a living? Uh, is that what this refers to? Uh, we look at life skills a little more broadly, uh, not just in the context of getting a job or you know, being able to earn a living. Uh, we use the WHO definition of life skills, where it's defined as life skills are abilities and behaviors that enable individuals to deal with demands and challenges of daily living. So the understanding is that daily living can be complex and it has its own set of demands and you need a set of abilities and behaviors that are adaptive, that help you deal with these demands and challenges. These could be problem-solving skills, conflict management skills, self-awareness, uh, ability to reflect and introspect, empathy, uh, conflict management, negotiation skills, taking initiative. So a whole host of skills uh, kind of come under this gambit of uh, life skills. Would you say these are timeless or does this need periodic innovation of what's relevant? Life skills per se are timeless because, I mean, by definition, they are skills for life. But, you know, life in the 21st century is very different from the 16th and will be very different from the 26th, right? I think that's, again, very contextual. Uh, for, so, for example, uh, across centuries, across decades, people have always said things are changing too fast. Uh, uh, so, change has always happened, right? And life skills become more relevant uh, in the context of change that's happening. Um, yes, they need to be kind of re-looked at from where we are in, in time itself. So from that space, I would say, yes, conflict management in 21st century might look different from conflict management, say, in the 16th century. Uh, but conflict management as a skill is timeless. And what are the benefits of that? Uh, like, you know, we are clear that when a child is able to read and do basic math, they're able to pick up any book, go to the market. Um, what is the benefit of uh, having sound life skills? I think prior to answer that question, we have to actually go into understanding the problem itself. Uh, <clears throat> I think there are two lenses of the problem, the way we understand it. One is, like I earlier said, the change has always happened and life skills are most relevant when change is happening. Uh, but what's unique about change that's happening in the 21st century is that three big shifts have come together. Uh, the pace of change in the 21st century is much faster, almost frantic. Uh, and the three big shifts is one is uh, the climate crisis and the changes in the environment that's impacting all of us across the world, uh, which is a very real challenge today, which means the complexity that our young people are going to deal with with this climate crisis is going to be fundamentally different. The second is uh, increased population, right? We have over 7 billion people in the world today and the planet just cannot sustain this kind of population, which means there is a higher pressure on limited resources. 
uh, and the third is technological advancements uh, and the disruption that technology has brought in. Now these three things have come together in this time, right. um, which is what's causing a frantic pace of change. Uh, a, a simple example for me would be that, you know, when I was a kid uh, and my father told me, go to school, get good grades, go to college, get good grades, you'll have a job and you'll help the family come out of poverty and you'll be successful, it was very true. Uh, that's no longer true. Right? In a country like India, where uh, we, we need 12 million jobs every year, but we're not creating more than 200 to 300,000 new jobs every year, uh, not every graduate is going to get a job. Right. Right? So that's a complex in now environment that we're living in. Uh, uh, in a city like Bangalore, for example, uh, we know we are running out of fresh drinking water. This is a real crisis that's happening. Uh, when that happens, how will you and me respond to this crisis? Are you and me going to fight with each other uh, and say this is my bucket of water and I'm going to own it and I don't care about you? Or are you and me going to collaborate and say, okay, now this is a problem for all of us, how do we find a solution to this? That's going to define how we live in the future with this crisis, uh, which is where then life skills become relevant, right? And, and life skills then helps you respond to these kind of complexities. But that's just one side of the problem. The second side of the problem, which is more relevant for kids growing up in adversity uh, or difficult circumstances, is that in the first, say, 10 years of your life, 0 to 10, uh, when children face adverse circumstances, this could be uh, neglect, lack of food or nutrition, lack of emotional care, uh, in extreme cases exposure to abuse or violence or extreme poverty or being abandoned or orphaned. Any or all of these adverse circumstances impact our ability to achieve developmental milestones. The way to understand that is that as every child across the world, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're growing up in Germany or America or in India, has a very similar growth trajectory. It is almost mapped. If you look at a growth chart of a child, it's almost mapped. You might probably see in the map that uh, kids in Germany are taller and they grow up to be taller adults. Uh, kids in India are average height, so they grow up to be of average height. Uh, but the trajectory looks exactly the same. Now what happens when you have an adverse circumstance? Suppose if you've been neglected as a child. Uh, neglect could look like, suppose if you've not been picked up as an infant and hugged, you will not grow. <coughs> right. So even if you kind of put a, a bottle of milk and feed that child through a pipe and feed them well, but if you don't touch them, if you don't hug them, they will not grow. Not just physically, but also emotionally and mentally they will not grow. So that results in developmental delays or in certain extreme cases, developmental damage. There is research which says that nine out of 10 individuals who have experienced abuse in early childhood are likely to have mental health challenges. That's nine out of 10, wow. right? So uh, very high percentage. It's a very high percentage, right? The other example is, for example, language. Now, most, of, most infants start picking up language skills between two to four years. At that age, if you even introduce five new languages in the child's life, they will pick up because the brain is most geared up uh, for language development. And the more language and vocabulary you pick up, the more neuron connections that happen. That's the new research and neurosciences that we know that works. 
But if you're living in a say a slum community where both your parents go to work and you've got an older sibling who's just nine or ten years old taking care of you, you're at this ripe age where language needs to happen and you don't have anyone to talk to and no one's giving you the vocabulary, no one's conversing with you for those 10, 12 hours during the day. So you don't pick up language skills. And then at the age of four and five, when you enter a school environment, you've not had the right development for you to then start picking up language or numeracy skills. Uh, and that results, so these adversities results in what we call failure to thrive, which means you do not achieve development at the age appropriate level. A combination now of uh, failure to thrive because of adversities and entering this very fast changing world and a complex uncertain future is a double whammy for 80% of the kids in the global south, countries like India and Africa and Latin America who are growing up in poverty. Uh, so life skills then becomes foundational. Uh, that life skills helps these children growing up in adversity to catch up to the developmental milestones. So if you put a kid who's now had developmental delays, even into the best school, they will not learn unless you address the gaps. I see. Right? So numeracy and literacy for me actually comes above the core foundation of life skills and social emotional learning. Uh, and then the life skills also help you build resilience and adaptability to respond to a fast changing world, to an uncertain complex future. So that's really for me at the core of what is the benefit of life skills and social-emotional learning. There are very clear measures when a child is not able to do subtraction or read a passage. And there's a lot of narrative around saying percentage of kids who cannot do this in a particular age. Right? Um, we've managed to detect that, we've managed to sensitize a large audience. Governments have acknowledged that there is a learning uh, outcome uh, deficiency that needs to be bridged. Uh, but we don't hear the same about life skills. Is there a way to measure it? And if so, what are those indicators? And you know, how does this come to the surface? In the education system, there are not enough measures. But in the health system, there are enough measures. So for example, uh, when a child learns how to tie a shoelace, you know they've got hand-motor coordination skills. Well, that's a life skill. Right? Your ability to, for example, open a button of your shirt and put it back in. That's an indicator that you have had achieved some kind of developmental milestone. Because each of it is a developmental milestone. When a child responds to you when you are, say, playing a game with an infant, or, and you are showing joy and engagement, the child also responds with joy and engagement, that's an indicator that the child knows how to respond to emotions. So these indicators exist in the area of health and mental health and mental well-being. It's important how we now bring in some of these indicators in the area of how do we look at educational outcomes. But those indicators, are they tracked? Is there a report that's published on it uh, every year? Or how do we know that where we are and how are we progressing on those indicators? I think that's where the work needs to be done. To, to one is recognize those as uh, feasible and good indicators of development and to then start actively using them. Uh, when you take a child to the doctor, you definitely have indicators of growth charts, right, which helps you track the growth of your child in terms of height and weight. There are benchmarks available. There are benchmarks for available right. for that. But these other now more socio-emotional indicators right. need to be mainstreamed. Okay. Uh, 
And of course, there's a lot more work that needs to be done in the area of measuring life skills and social emotional competencies itself. Because they are considered intangible, it's difficult but not impossible. There has to be an investment of time, resources and bandwidth in this area, more from a space of wanting to learn and explore. Uh, and it has to be fundamentally different from a traditional standardized testing approach. So assessments also have to kind of almost reinvent themselves and look at these areas more as formative assessments that help you understand where the child is at, uh, not necessarily as benchmarks that this is where you want the child to be. Because what you want to see in these areas is delta shifts from a po point A to point B, but not necessarily everyone trying to reach a point C. Yes. So those rewiring of how we look at assessments from this perspective is required. Vishal, there's all this pressure towards growth, right? Everybody's trying to reach millions of kids and hundreds of numbers of countries and, you know, just grow as fast as we can because the premise is that there's a whole generation of children out there. And if we don't serve them today, we would lose them. There's all of this emphasis on scaling as fast as possible. At Dream a Dream, over the last 20 years, how have you thought about the pace of growth? Uh, you know, many years back, a mentor of mine uh, gave this very beautiful story. Uh, he said when the uh, caterpillar is ready to turn into a butterfly and kind of becomes a cocoon, from the outside it looks like there is no movement. Uh, it's very still. But underneath, inside the cocoon, there is hectic activity going on. Uh, the butterfly that's emerging is trying to break out of the shell. And then you start seeing that process of breaking out, right? There's a, there's a lot of effort and there's a lot of suffering in that. In that moment, if you cut the cocoon in the hope that you're helping the butterfly emerge, uh, the butterfly will die. Oh. Because what happens is that process of pain and struggle is what lets the blood flow all the way to the wings. And that's how the butterfly emerges. So when we have looked at our own journey at Dream Dream as growth, a key aspect has been that we have to stay still as a cocoon with hectic activity going on underneath that to understand the complexity of the problem. Uh, speed without understanding the complexity of young children's lives uh, will end up then you're solving the wrong problem. Um, the problem is very layered. Right? If you start off with, for example, a particular kid uh, who is not turning up to school for one day, for a week, for two weeks, for three weeks, your first reaction as a teacher might be this kid is not interested in coming to school. Right? And if you then just try to solve that problem, that how do I make this kid come to school? So can I force them? Can I incentivize them? Uh, then you're solving the wrong problem because you've not understood the problem. The problem might be that the child has an ill mother at home and the child has a lot of anxiety about leaving their mother alone at home and going to school. So that is the fear that's not letting them come to school. But you're not solving that problem. Okay. Uh, so one of the things we take a lot of pride in at Dream Dream is that we spend the first 10 years just understanding the problem and being able to articulate it in the way I articulated earlier of child adversity, failure to thrive, and the fast pace of change. Uh, so I'll give you an example of one particular year. This was 2010 when we were finishing 10 years of the organization. 
Uh, and we were asking ourselves this question of what does the next 10 years of Dream Dream look like? Uh, we had directly impacted about 10,000 young people. We knew we had a reasonably good program. Uh, but we were like in a country with 300 million children, 140 million children growing up in poverty, 10,000 is not even a drop in the ocean. So what should we be doing differently? So that was the year we went still. And uh, <clears throat> what we did was we said all of us across the team are going to go back to the field, reconnect with the child, reconnect with the teacher, reconnect with parents and ask the question around why do children come to our program? And when we started reconnecting with that, uh, what, we, what response we got was quite fascinating. Children came and told us that they come to a Dream Dream program because they feel respected and cared for, which was very interesting, which was not a response we were expecting. It was like, oh, we come because of the snack, because we get to play football, or because we get to do art, or because the facilitators are amazing, we get to play a lot, none of that. Right? It was really that respect and care. It was like, well, what does that mean? So then we started mapping our facilitators. We had about 30 odd facilitators. We started observing about what are they doing. And what we realized is one is a majority of our facilitators come from the communities themselves. So they've been through experiences of adversity themselves. So high levels of empathy uh, for the child. What the facilitators were doing was creating environments of trust, authenticity, creativity, non-judgmental attitude towards children. Um, creating environments of listening, validation, acknowledging children for who they are, accepting children for who they are. So these were a set of dispositions and attributes that our facilitators were demonstrating across uh, all schools. Like this is fascinating. So there was something in our culture which we had not recognized until then that was creating this environment of authenticity, listening, validation in the facilitators who were then role modeling this for children which was in creating respect and care. And we realized the biggest shift that was happening in children's lives was because of this environment. So that's where we got the core element of the tipping point, as I would call it. So it's not about delivering a sports program or an arts program uh, you know, in tune with life skills. It was now about how about we unlock this level of empathy and care in adults who are already in an existing system working with children and young people. Could we do that? That led us to the design of our teacher development program. So that stillness for the year helped us break out of the mold of just scaling our direct delivery program, our after school program or our career program to now saying how do I work with the next layer that influences the child which is the teacher. And in a very fundamental way, creating transformation by unlocking creativity and empathy and care. So after 20 years of investing in the theory of change, in knowing what works and what doesn't, we recently saw the bamboo shoots grow skywards with your Delhi program and the Andhra Pradesh program. We had never worked with governments and that was our fault as an organization. We should have engaged with the governments earlier. Uh, but we said now we need to. Uh, but we don't know how to, so let's start small. So in Karnataka, what we did was we did a bottoms-up approach, where we started working at the block level and at the district level with block education officers and diet commissioners. And we said, okay, if we can get them on our side, then they can start championing for this within the school system. And the way to do that was to pick a district, say like Davangiri or Honnahalli, and try to cover as many schools in the systems as possible. Then the teachers are then going back to these BEOs and saying, 
hey, I did this amazing program. It's truly transformed me and my school. Now I think you should take this to more schools in your block. And that started happening. But we were not building any traction at the state level. And then the Delhi government happened. We knew that uh, the Delhi government was invested in education. And so we were trying to get them excited about who we are. So we invited uh, Manish Sisodia's advisor, Atishi, uh, to change the script at our annual conference. Our conference itself is a highly experiential design space. So she experienced the conference and she was like, okay, these guys know what they're talking about. And then we got a meeting with Manishji and he had this vision of a happiness curriculum. His problem statement was, when I go into schools, children have a relationship of fear with the teacher or fear with the school. They don't really want to come to school. And that's not good. I want to change that relationship. The second, he had a vision. He said the purpose of education really is for children to learn how to be happy themselves and how to make others happy. And he gave us that. And he said, can you help me do that? Can you help me design this happiness curriculum? The easy thing would have been to give them our curriculum. Well tested, has been running for 16 years, take it, it works. But we realized that's not the solution. When you're now create, trying to work in systems, uh, you have to give them what they need in a way that they believe they created it. So while the deputy CM had a vision and he was very committed to making it happen, when we went into the system, we realized the system is not talking to each other. The diet is not talking to the SCRT, the SCRT is not talking to the DOE, uh, they are not talking to the teachers, the teachers are not talking to the principals. So it was a very, it was these isolated systems. Mm. Okay. So if I give them a curriculum, they're going to reject it. So what we did was we brought people together from across these systems and put them through a process of learning to collaborate. Then through that, understanding what, who is the child that's coming into your school, what are the complexities of the child's life, the adversities they're facing, and how do you design something for this child from the lens of happiness. So they designed the curriculum. So once they went through their own personal transformation of what it means to work together, what it means to be joyful, then they could design a curriculum keeping the child in mind. And we worked with them over two months to do that. So the uptake was almost 80% right from the beginning because there was high levels of ownership and high levels of their own understanding that this is amazing, this is beautiful, and we should take this to the children. Right? So we realized our job now in systemic change is not about taking our solution to the system. It's about taking our approach to the system. But this sounds a little fuzzy, you know, like teaching people to be intuitive and then believing that there will be no cascade loss. What's the evidence? You're right, we don't have evidence today. Uh, it's an hypothesis. Uh, in Delhi, it's working. Uh, uh, in Delhi, it's working through anecdotal evidence that we're building, that the feedback mechanisms that are coming back to us, the stories that are coming back to us. Um, for example, there was this amazing story recently of a girl uh, who, through a happiness class, uh, she learned about conflict management and the way she learned about conflict management is that when say you're in a fight with a friend take a step back take a moment breathe and think about five good qualities about your friend uh, and she learned that and she said it worked for her and then she went back home she realized her parents are constantly fighting every time the father comes home from work uh, they end up in a fight 
Uh, and what she did was she sat them down one evening and she said, okay, no, stay still and we're going to take you through a breathing exercise. She took them through a breathing exercise wow. and said, now here's a piece of paper. I want each of you to write five good things about the other. This is an 11-year-old girl. Fascinating. Right? It's working because it's intuitive. You know that this works in your body. And, and, and how do you know it's intuitive? Because it's not just coming from the mind. It's coming from the heart. You know you want your parents to have a good relationship. And it's also coming from a body shift because you know when you did the exercise, something inside you shifted. So you know what is the impact of that on your parents if they try it out. And it, there was a positive impact on the parents because they started smiling, they started laughing, and they're like, oh, I didn't know you thought I was good at this. Right? That kind of conversation happened. Uh, so while we don't have empirical evidence, uh, we do know this works. It is fuzzy, uh, but if you take a, if you take it in steps, right? Um, if you take it in steps of okay, how do I give more agency to the teacher? How do I give more agency to the student? How do I build the life skills that they need to deal with, say, conflict or to deal with uh, challenges in their life? To deal, to build the ability to make choices in life, uh, to become more self-aware of who I am and what are my strengths. Uh, and, and to bring in more empathy in their relationships, that is possible. That's the skill building process. And the more you do build that muscle, the more intuitive you will become as a human being. Vishal, what has surprised you the most about working with governments? Before we worked with the government, there was this uh, almost a stereotype that uh, people in the government don't listen to you, they're not efficient, they don't understand what you're trying to do. And the biggest surprise was that when we started working with government systems, whether it was at the block or district level in Karnataka or at the state level in Delhi and Andhra Pradesh, uh, we have actually found absolutely amazingly inspired, very knowledgeable, very intelligent people. Uh, and someone once told me that uh, when the government wants to do something, they're very good at it. So how do you find what they really want to do? And if you're able to find that, then you know they will invest money, time, and efficiencies in making it happen. Um, so what has surprised us is more like our own stereotype around uh, government has broken. Uh, we've actually been very excited uh, working with uh, different governments, uh, Delhi and Andhra Pradesh for sure. We've just now started working with the Telangana, with specifically the Tribal Social Welfare Department. Uh, and uh, Dr. Praveen Kumar, who heads that, he's, he's, a, he's a genius, he's inspiring. Uh, and he's an IPS who came into education about seven, eight years back. Um, but deeply inspiring in the way he understands children, understands children's needs and how he's responding to those needs and how he's getting the whole system to work for the child. And that's the same with Manishji in Delhi. He's so deeply committed to the child uh, that he's consistently thinking about how do I improve the environments that are engaging the child in learning so that the child can grow up to become a good citizen and why it's so important for a, for a country like India to have good citizens who are critical thinkers, who are visionary, who are idealists, uh, but who are also smart and intelligent and knowledgeable. Uh, so finding these champions inside government across the board not just at the top level, but also at the diet levels, at the block levels, with teachers, 
uh, has been amazing, has been an amazing journey. And again, a realization that uh, finally we are dealing with humans and humans understand the language of empathy. Okay, what have been the more challenging moments of working with the government? I think the challenge really has been our own uh, journey of understanding how a government system functions. Uh, what are the levers where you know, shifts can happen? Who are the champions inside the government? Uh, what are the government's needs? Even that's very complex to understand. Uh, uh, it requires tremendous amount of listening and empathy. Uh, and because we already are very good at it, uh, we are able to do that very well. So the challenge is really our own challenge, that we don't understand this complex system very well. And we need to spend more time in listening and understanding this complex system. Uh, the better we do that, uh, the more easier I hope it will become to work with them. Uh, also, the second piece is uh, uh, trust. Uh, why should a government trust you? Uh, there are so many organizations that can come in and tell you, I have a solution, I have a great solution. Why, the shit, why should they trust you? So listening also helps build trust in the system. And not just listening as a strategy, but listening as an authentic approach for systems change. Uh, and that has helped us build trust in the system. And building trust is a challenging process. And even if you build, it's very fragile. One small thing can break that trust. Um, uh, trust also comes in the space of where you push back, where you stay true to your value system uh, and where you receive, where you kind of you know, listen in and lean in into that. Uh, so that journey has been a challenging journey for us, but it's more our challenge, not the government's challenge. Um, I think once we break into that, you will realize that governments are, uh, are great to work with because they, they are committed to us to solving the problem. So Vishal, like when you say listen to the government, how do you manifest that? Do you walk into an office, you sit in front of an officer, and you say, Sir, bataye? Yes, and many other things. Uh, so recently, for example, uh, we're trying to build a relationship with another department in Delhi. They have this group called the Schools of Excellence. These are model schools of excellence where they want to give them the best level of education, the best facilities for children to truly thrive. Uh, um, and my first meeting with the uh, director who manages this program uh, really was like, you know, uh, so what is your pain point? What are you struggling with right now? Um, and you know, what she said was very fascinating. She said, we try to get the best teachers from the current government system into the schools of excellence. Uh, but teachers don't want to come into the school of excellence because the fear is that because it's a school of excellence, there'll be high level of expectation on me. And I don't know if I'm ready for it. I would have never understood that. When she understood that, when she told me that, her, her articulation of the problem statement was that what the teachers need is to build a sense of identity that they're good. We've chosen them because they're good. They don't believe they're good. So how do I build that sense of identity in them and self-confidence in them? And security. Yeah, right? yeah, security. Right? So that's what listening is. The second aspect of listening is, uh, so when we, when we started working with this group of 40 people from across departments in developing the happiness curriculum, um, the first half a day of that three-day design process, everyone in the system just complained. 
this doesn't work, this is not working for me, this person doesn't respond to me, my file is stuck here, da 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 I'm working 20 hours a day, I have no time to reflect, I don't have no time to do lesson plans because I'm doing this and this and this. Now these are complex problems. Right? I don't have solutions to these complex problems, but as a facilitator, can I create an environment of safety where it's all right to say all this and I find a way to listen and validate and acknowledge that this is a complex problem. That's all they want. Because the next step after that what happens is, once that is out and they felt heard and seen, they know the solution themselves. Which is how you and me are also. When I'm sitting with a complex problem, I'm, I'm not necessarily always looking for a solution. I'm looking for someone to just validate me. And when I get that validation, then my head is cleared up and I know what the solution is. But has it been that because of the strategy it's backfired, you've been asked to leave, never come back, or, or people are not clear as to you're just wasting their time? Uh, not that, but what has happened is that they are like, okay, so what is this geometry? Uh, so it does, in a sense, become more difficult to break through that. So if I talk about, for example, in Telangana, uh, it was a very similar first meeting with uh, Dr. Praveen Kumar. Uh, we had a great recommendation. He was looking forward to meeting us, but on that particular day, he was extremely busy. Uh, so then we had that conversation, but really for us in that sense was, okay, what are these one or two sentences that are his pain points that I can pick up? And then it was about just validating that coming back outside and working with his team on unwrapping that problem statement and helping the team then understand what we can do to support that. Uh, because in the first instance, it didn't seem like we could solve his problem. But we have to unwrap it and kind of the team helped us unwrap what is his really what he's trying to say. Uh, and then when we designed something, it, it worked for him. It's like, yeah, this is exactly what I want. So sometimes they also needed help with articulating what they're trying to articulate. And they need the language. So, and, if, and if it happens, and then it took us three, four months before we could get there. Um, so we also realized that uh, while there is a sense of impatience and urgency, they still want good solutions. So at the end of the day, if you do come back with a good solution, they will listen again to you. Vishal, could you tell us your journey from the beginning? How did you start Dream a Dream? You know, your journey over the 20 years, what were the roles you played in that and where you are today? Born and brought up in Bangalore, uh, my grandparents came from pre-partition Pakistan, settled in Bangalore. My parents were born here, so very much a Bangalorean. Uh, the good thing about my upbringing was that uh, both my parents were educated which meant that we got access to the best education that they could afford. And the one thing that they said is that, do well in education so you can help the family get out of poverty and you know, kind of do well. Uh, and that's what I did. You know, so I finished my graduation and I wanted to do an MBA, get a few years of work experience under my belt and go back and do, go, go on and do an MBA, become an investment banker or consultant. So no idea, no background in the social development space. Uh, but now after many years of having gone through the journey, I've also learned to connect the dots of my life to see that there were elements of my character growing up uh, that were attuned towards, uh, at, in the early ages it was more around, I didn't understand why there was so much poverty around. Uh, because we lived in a neighborhood where around us there were other poor people who were poorer than us. It, I never understood why they were poor. 
but there was always that question of why. Uh, why are the beggars on the street and why don't they have a home? Uh, why do some people not have enough to eat? Uh, even in the school I went to where you could never tell who's rich or poor, but my mother used to always pack extra lunch and there were always kids in my classroom who wouldn't bring lunch and who'd share my lunch. Uh, so there, was, there were those elements which didn't make sense as a kid, uh, but then now I understand that they became part of uh, my value system, my identity, my character. Um, so Dream Dream was started in 1999, uh, 12 of us started it. Wow, 12? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Mostly friends, common friends, uh, uh, people who wanted to in some way give back to the community. So each of us came from our own uh, inspiration and intention. Uh, the idea germinated uh, largely from uh, one of the co-founders called Brinda Jacob, who wanted to bring people together, people who can probably provide a service or time or volunteer with people who have certain needs. Uh, I had gone through my own personal journey and I was sitting on this whole idea of dignity, that uh, why do we have a country where some people are not respected and appreciated for who they are or treated differently because of the backgrounds they come from. Uh, so I was sitting on that question, I didn't have an answer, but I wanted to engage with that question. So I met Brinda and she was talking about this and I felt that maybe this is one way to do it. So all of us really started as volunteers with no background in the sector. Uh, we found a mentor who gave us a really good piece of advice. She said, don't try to find solutions, try to understand the problem. So go into communities, engage in communities. So the next two years then really became about understanding communities and problems. And then the first few years uh, with really two parallel journeys. One was uh, organization building. I came into an organization where I was the first employee. We had 20,000 rupees in the bank, not enough money to pay for our programs and rent and salaries. Uh, so the first step was really the organization building process. And I had no, obviously, prior experience in building an organization. So I just did whatever I thought was best, hiring people, fundraising, uh, building the organization to some level of stability. Uh, the second was uh, understanding the work we want to do. And that's what really where I spend most of my time. So the first few years, I would go to every program that we did with children. I would spend time with children, I would engage in their lives and the life stories. Uh, I delivered many of the programs myself. Uh, I used to cart volunteers in my car uh, to uh, uh, shelter homes where we used to run programs for kids. Uh, so every day a bunch of 10 volunteers in my Maruti van <laughs> uh, carted away to a center, do a whole day of work, then bring them back. Uh, and I completely valued that experience, deeply valued the experience because that grounded me in the complexity of children's lives. I lost many children, some to HIV, some to cancer, some to drugs. Uh, so also then building that emotional resilience that this work is not going to be easy, it's not all joyful and fun. So one was my own personal commitment saying, now this is, this is life. Uh, but more importantly, a question around that is more than the child. There's a systemic structural crisis here that we as a, as a society are failing our children. Uh, and we, we need to understand how we are failing our children and how often we are failing our children. Uh, so the solution just cannot be working on the child. We have to also work on the systems around that. Um, 
so that those early experiences shaped a lot of my journey and who I became and how I looked at this work, which is why even today the child is always at the center of Dream a Dream. Every choice, every conversation inside the organization always starts with the child. One of the things, for example, a lot of people in the sector tell about us is that we are purists. And we actually take that as a compliment. That we are and we need to be purists because we're dealing with human lives here, not numbers. Right? What does that mean? What does being a purist mean? What do people insinuate when they tell you you are a purist? Uh, that there's a lot of deep impact work, which means it cannot scale. Uh, and Dreamy Dream is not invested in scale. We are, they are invested in deep impact work. Scale as in volumes, number of yeah, children. Yeah, so. exactly. And because it's deep impact, it's high resource, and that's why it can't scale. That's their that's the That's the assumption. That's, but we do deep impact work because that's the only kind of work that's needed for children. And you can scale deep impact work. Like if I compare my, uh, our work, Dream Dreams work, say back in 2007, to uh, our work today in 2019, the quality of our work and impact has actually grown manifold, not reduced. Right? Because now we've figured out those kernels of impact and how do you create impact, whether you have two hours with a child or seven years with a child. And that's the deep impact work. So it's again around breaking those narratives that deep impact work doesn't mean that you cannot scale. It means you've got enough depth to now draw insights from it and scale the insight, not the work. And it's about the intensity of the work, right? So whether you have two hours or seven years, it's what you do with that time, the high impact in that short duration, limited period of time. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think the second piece of my journey, which has been fascinating, is around building organization culture. Um, the first 10 years, the culture was really designed around, because I didn't know how to build organizations, really relying on people who came and gave me advice. And a lot of the advice was very good advice, but it was again around traditional notions of say, having HR systems, structures, hierarchies, roles and responsibilities. Uh, at some point, we became so process-oriented as an organization uh, that we lost the human element. Uh, I didn't want to come in and into office anymore because it was so process driven. You had to come in, sign an attendance sheet, you had to apply for leaves and things like that. Um, and I realized this culture will not help us solve the problem. We need to have a culture which kind of gives us a demonstration of the kind of society we want and not become the kind of society we are. So we shifted the culture around 2010 when we were going through this big stillness uh, and we said we, our culture is going to be value-based and we said three values, trust, dignity and accountability. That we trust each other, we trust ourselves to do our roles and jobs and we trust each other. Every role has dignity. Dignity is not defined by the amount of pay package you get. Dignity is defined by the fact that you're a human being working here. And the third was accountability, that I hold myself to the highest standards of accountability and I hold you to the highest standards of accountability. So the core of it is important about building a culture on these three value systems of trust, dignity, and accountability. Uh, so all our systems and processes then had to reflect these value systems. So a simple thing like no one needs to apply for a casual leave anymore. A casual leave is defined as a one-day leave that you can take as many as you want in a year. You just need to inform people in your team that you're not coming in today because it came from a space saying 
that people have things to do, people have families to take care of, you probably want to go to your, school, to your, your child's PTM at school, or some days you just want to sit at home and watch movies. Let's value that and let's trust people that they know what their accountabilities are and they'll follow those. Uh, we broke out compensation and uh, growth, personal growth and professional growth, completely separated it out. And we said professional growth is a self-responsibility, is self-accountability. You decide when you need to move to the next level, when you're ready to, the move, uh, to move to the next level, what skills you need to move to the next level, not the requirement of compensation that defines that. Performance appraisal systems were completely phased out. Now we have self-reflection processes. So each individual reflects on how they've done in the last year, what they need to improve on, what they've done well, and they decide if they're ready to move to the next level. This is also important for us to then stay authentic to the work with the children. If at the core of it, our work is around developing agency in life skills in children, and we are asking children to have the agency to deal with complex challenges in their life and negotiate through those complex challenges, then our own culture has to reflect that, has to role model that. I cannot have a disempowering culture inside the organization where I'm focused on empowerment outside, and I'm not true to the work. So we had to link our work at the last mile with the child, then to the teacher, to back to our own culture. Uh, the third piece around our journey was we said that uh, we are here to solve the problem, which means that at some point, Dream a Dream has to become irrelevant and redundant uh, because we have either solved the problem or we have created an ecosystem now that's solving the problem at a large scale. So it's not that Dream a Dream has to solve the problem. The problem has to be solved right? and whoever solves it and whatever groups that come together to solve it. So in order to do that, then we had to redesign our org design itself. So we moved from a traditional hierarchical system to a more flat structure where we said, how do we enable, say, 100 people inside the organization to become CEOs, CEOs of their roles, where they have the agency to take choices and make decisions for the roles that they are playing. A good example of that, for example, is that we have a life skills facilitator, a young girl, who was in our program, graduated, became a life skills facilitator. She went back to facilitate in the same school where she had studied. And she realized when she was in school, there were lots of empty plots of private land around the school where they could play. But those had gotten developed now. So there was no play spaces for the children. Then over eight months, and this is, Dream a Dream doesn't know about it, none of us know anything about it, but she on her own, using her own life skills, over eight months negotiated with the local corporator, the local MLA, the local, a local philanthropist she found, parents, young people, she brought together school leaders, mostly men, that she negotiated with to get a private developer to donate a piece of land Fascinating. as a play space for children. She got the philanthropist to agree to clear up the piece of land. So he paid money to get it all cleared. She got parents and school leaders and school teachers to come and clean it up and decorate the piece of land. Today, a thousand kids use that piece of land as a play space in the community every week. Wow. Right? Now, that is unlocking of leadership. And that's what you want. Now, when a Pallavi can make that happen in her community, then you know that Dream Dream is not needed. Right. right? These are the timeless skills that you have. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. These are the timeless skills. 
so that's how then the org design became, that how do we unlock more of this change-making agency leadership, this new kind of leadership in the organization, which is all coming together with a shared purpose. So the purpose is shared, but how we go about achieving that is really your own agency, your own understanding of the context, your own understanding of the communities that you're working in. Now, Ravana, for example, who's one of our first graduates in the program, who's a manager for our after-school program, which works with 5,000 kids, he's got this vision saying, you know, if I'm working at 28 schools in Bangalore now, how do these 28 schools become uh, hubs of community change in their communities? So he's working with young people in the school, with the school leader, the principal, and the teachers, on how they can push uh, the school to become a, a, a space in the community where change is kind of almost burdened. And, and, and he's building that vision for the school, which is so different from a traditional school vision. Right. Right? So this is, how, this is the third piece around my, uh, my own entrepreneurial journey to now learn there's leadership emerging from the ground and I don't have all the answers. Finally, now I'm in a place where I can you know, say, yes, I don't have all the answers, but others in the team have the answers now, which led us to then say, okay, we need to then have a leadership transition because we needed to demonstrate in the team that everyone can be a CEO. But also very importantly, unlike a traditional organization where you have a clean sweep where the founder then leaves, it was important for me to stay in a different role. One is to demonstrate that I can reinvent myself that I can move to a different role. I can report to a new leader so we can build a more flatter structure that's more leadership unlocking. So tomorrow, if someone else wants to move in and become a CEO of the organization, that's just a role that you're playing. But Sucheta, as, as who's the current CEO, doesn't have to leave the organization for that to happen. She can continue to stay as a leader, enabling more large-scale impact. So it is, it is almost rewiring our understanding of organizations. And that's been amazing for us because our attritions are less than 10%. Wow. There's this consistent reinvention that all of us are going through individually uh, and pushing our own learning edges uh, as, as new leaders in the space. Vishal, over the last 20 years uh, of leading Dream a Dream, can you describe how your role has changed? I think the first uh, two years uh, was uh, really like my own immersion into the space. Um, whereas a volunteer I was spending time in communities. In the first five years, really, I was a student understanding the complexity of the problem and kind of looking at different lenses of the problem uh, without necessarily having a sense of what might work. So it was, I could say it could be, it, it was the first layer of understanding of the problem that, say, children need access to learning opportunities, sports and arts are great ways to create learning opportunities for children, so let's offer that. That was as far as my understanding of the problem went. The second phase was uh, at a personal level, one around organization building. So let's say about 2006 till about 2010, a lot of it was around organization building. So codifying our curriculums, building the team, scaling the organization, understanding our partnership model, our delivery model. So typical what you would do in an organization setup, you know, building HR systems and things like that. Uh, 2010 was a big turning point where it was then about shifting from building organization to scaling impact and shifting our own lens from that we are not here to build organization, we are here to scale the impact uh, and how do we go about doing that. Uh, so the next phase really was around uh, 
moving from an entrepreneurial energy to an uh, to one uh, kind of a movement builder energy uh, uh, and how do we understand the elements of what movement building uh, looks like uh, and how do I reinvent myself now as a movement builder how do I learn to articulate my insights not just have them but learn to articulate them for an external audience uh, how do I let go uh, as a leader uh, which was the most difficult part of between say 2011 to 2016 um, because uh, in the early years in the first 10 years I was almost a micromanager uh, I had to be involved in everything so I used to do the bookkeeping I used to look at every annual report read it end to end and the font that needs to go in the color that needs to happen to now kind of almost breaking out of that and saying you know I don't need to do all of that I need if, if you're building a culture of trust then I need to learn to trust uh, the team the organization uh, so letting go was a big part of my journey and then reinventing myself as a movement builder uh, and now in this in this last three year phase uh, it has been really about expanding that uh, understanding of who am I as a movement builder not just in India but also globally so how am I becoming now more mission driven and not organization driven uh, how am I now uh, bringing in the voice of the young person in these global spaces whether it's an OECD or a UN or a Brookings or a Nashoka network how am I bring, becoming the voice of the young person and not just representing dreamatory and that's been a very fascinating journey for me as a leader to now see that uh, and, and a big shift of that for me personally also been from moving from being a very insecure leader to now being very secure in who I am and what my journey has been. Thank you, Vishal. It was great chatting with you today. I really learned a lot about you know, how to build an organization and within that journey, how the role of the leader should evolve uh, from you know, doing everything under the sun to actually thinking beyond the organization itself. Uh, I also very much enjoyed the transformative, the transformative stories that you described of some of the individuals. And I was really taken aback by how the three values, you know, uh, emanated by keeping the child at the center and every strategy, every, you know, policy in the organization drew from that, uh, where what we wanted to do outside had to be mimicked from the inside. Uh, I became a little more knowledgeable about 21st century skills um, and, you know, almost how they are a prerequisite before every child is actually able to read and write and do basic math. Thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. you. Thank you, Pranav. Thanks, thanks a lot, yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, do subscribe to our podcast. To hear more life skills, do listen to our episode with Sharath Jeevan. You can also check out the entire video series on www.youtube.com slash eivideos.